Do any of you have that friend that tells you the end of a book before you read it? (laughs) Or they tell you the end of the movie before you can watch it? Or they tell you the end of a story before they tell it? That's the worst. I met a chaplain this week. It's a Marion. I've got a great story to tell you. But you need to know, in the end, she dies. <laughs> really? Why? You ruined it. That's the worst. Where's my mystery? Where's my suspense? I love a good story. What have you done? You told me the end. Believe it or not, friends, we are those people. When we tell our faith story, we're the ones that always tell the end first. Because no matter what's going on, we all know the end of the story. And that's what we tell people. The tomb is empty. We are Easter people who know the tomb is empty, so we always start at the end. My name is Marion Brown. I am your missions and service pastor, and I am so thankful to be here this third Sunday. That's right. Believe it or not, this is the third Sunday of Easter, that Easter morning where we celebrated everything that actually launched us into a greater Easter season, 50 days to be exact. So now we are in our great 50 days celebration of Easter, and those 50 days of Easter will lead us right on into Pentecost. Get it? 50 Pentecost. If you don't know what Pentecost is, come back on June 9th and we'll tell you some more about it. But for now, we get to just sit in our Easter season because our historic faith, our historical church calendar puts us right there on the third Sunday of Easter. Easter is a busy day, isn't it? There's a lot of preparation and work that goes into Easter morning. You got to make sure everybody's clothes are ready. (laughs) What's everybody wearing? Do we have everything we need for the egg hunts? Do we have all the school schedules? Do we have all the work schedules? Do we supposed to bring a flower to church? Are we not supposed to bring a flower to church? There's just a lot of preparation. And then all of a sudden we start thinking, oh, goodness, what are we going to do for food? Who's cooking on Easter? Do we need to make a reservation? What's going on? And then, of course, some of us have these family dynamics. We have to begin to think, okay, who's coming into town? How are we going to navigate that? As a church, we have a lot of preparations for Easter. We have to think about all the logistics, all the details, all the people, all the wonderful things. But see, all of our preparations as families and people and as churches, they all revolve around the end of the story. We all are preparing to get to that empty tomb. The disciples, though, they're a little different. You see, they didn't know what was going to happen. And so their preparations and their few 40 days leading up to Easter look very differently than ours do. For the disciples, they're still traveling. They're still going from city to city. 
They're still listening to sermons. They're still teaching and preaching and listening and learning. And every day they have to make a brand new commitment to leave their friends, leave their family, leave their home, and change their whole vocational life to follow Jesus. And then they have to take Jesus to Jerusalem. And they have to say they're having a last meal. And they have to say goodbye. And then they have to actually watch him die. And then they put him in the tomb, and then the tomb is empty. So those few days after Easter for the disciples, I imagine they're in a little bit of emotional turmoil. They've got stress going. They may be in grief. They're in a mode of crisis, maybe even some trauma. So what do the disciples do in their days after Easter? They do the only thing they know to do. Simon Peter says, hey, I'm going fishing. And all the other disciples says, hey, what? I think I will go with you. And what happens next? What happens for those disciples is caught at the end of our chapter in John that we're going to read right now. Is going to be caught in the Gospel of John at the end. It's called the epilogue. Look on the screens with me, if you will. Okay. Maybe we'll read our scripture from John. Chapter 21, and I'm going to read 9 through 13. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with a fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled them at a shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. I don't know about you, but I wish I were there. There's a man with a charcoal fire. Can you smell the grill? It's a weird phenomenon what happens when somebody grills, isn't it? As soon as somebody lights a charcoal fire, a grill, the whole atmosphere changes. All of a sudden, people start to relax. And all of a sudden, the smell is so appealing that everybody wants to kind of gather around. And I'm convinced if somebody smells a grill, it doesn't matter what you have planned that whole day, your whole day completely changes. All your priorities shift. And that's what happened to the disciples. The disciples are fishing, they smell a grill. They look over on the beach and they see a man. And the man says, hey, come, eat breakfast. And the disciples immediately jump out of the boat 
And they begin to swim, and they begin to run to the grill, and immediately they see fish on their grill and bread, and they are thankful, and they are hungry, and they sit down. And all of a sudden, this man, this man, they take the fish, and they put it on the plate, and they take the bread, and they break the bread and put it on the plate. And all of a sudden, they recognize Jesus. Out of all the ways Jesus could have appeared to his disciples, Jesus took the time to make breakfast on the beach. The simple act of breakfast becomes a means of grace. The very last supper the disciples had with Jesus right before he died, we celebrate that as Holy Thursday, Monday, Thursday, the last supper. That last night when Jesus broke bread with his disciples, Jesus took the time to wash their feet. And now here we have a resurrected Jesus sharing a meal with his feet in the sand. And as Jesus is sharing this meal, he does what Jesus does, which is he begins to teach. And he begins to talk to them. And if you read the rest of this scripture in the end of John, you'll hear it and read it too. I hope you go home and read it. It says that Jesus picked one disciple and said, Hey, Simon Peter, Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then go feed my lambs. Hey, Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Tend my sheep. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Follow me. The very one that denied Jesus three times is the very one that's called into three different acts of service. Denial can change into love. And that's what's really happening this third Sunday of Easter. Jesus calls us, hey, come. Jesus feeds us, eat breakfast. And Jesus leads us, follow me. Jesus calls us, Jesus feeds us, and Jesus leads us. Hey, Marion, I got a great story for you. Hey, Chapel Roswell, I got a great story for you. But you need to know, in the end she dies. I met a man named Stuart this week. And you need to know, Stuart is like, he hates germs. It's a really big thing for him. Like, he can't do germs. It's such a big issue that Stuart does not travel on airplanes or buses. He doesn't go anywhere unless he's in his car all by himself. He just can't handle it. One day, he got a phone call from a church member. And the church member said, hey, Stuart, we need your help with something. Nope. Hold on, before you say no, just hold on. We need you to be a prison mentor. Nope. Oh, come on, before you say no, just hear me out. Stuart, we need you to be a prison mentor, which means you get a prison inmate, 
and you got to check on him every week for six months before he's released and six months after he's released. We really would like for you to go visit the prisoner, but if you just can't do it, all you got to do is call him once a week. Stuart says, all right, I'll do it, but I'm only going to do it for a year, and I'm only going to call him. You need to hear me say right now, I am never going to that prison. Okay, Stuart, great. So Stuart makes the first phone call, and he has a phone introduction to Charlie. Charlie's introduced to Stuart. Not a lot really happens. The next week, kind of the same, still kind of getting to know each other. The third weekly phone call, Charlie says, you know what? I really kind of need some help, Stuart. I need 10 bucks on my food card. Stuart says, no problem. Happy to do it. And that's how this relationship goes. They visit on the phone about once a week, every third or so visit. Charlie needs somewhere in the ballpark of $15 or $20 on a food cart, and Stuart likes it like this. This is great. Happy to help you, Stuart. Happy to help you, Charlie. Four months in, Stuart calls Charlie, and Charlie says, Stuart, I really need your help today. And in Stuart's mind, he's thinking, okay, how much? Charlie says, my mom is real sick. In fact, my mom is going to die before I'm released. He said, I've already done the paperwork. And he said, the thing is, you're my prison mentor, and you're the only person that can bring her to me for me to see. Stuart, I need you to bring my mother to me so I can see her before, I die, before she dies. And Charlie says, and the best part of it is, I got permission for this to be a food visit. Well, Stuart said he was feeling very shameful because he was about to have to say no. And all of a sudden, as he goes to say no in his shame, Stuart said, sure, Charlie, happy to do it. A lot more paperwork, a lot more instruction. The day of the visit comes, and Stuart has to literally go to an unmarked residential medical facility. He goes in, and standing there in the lobby, waiting for him, is Charlie's mother. And she's hunched over on a walker. She still has IVs, and they're all going to somewhere in this big bag she has over her shoulder. And right next to the walker is a big bag of barbecue. The nurse comes over and gets Stuart and takes him over because apparently Stuart has to officially sign her out and say that he will be completely medically responsible for Charlie's mother during this visit. And the nurse says to Stuart, gosh, she is so excited. She's so excited she had me buy that barbecue two days ago. All of a sudden, Stuart's panicking. He gets the mom in the car with the barbecue and the walker. Everyone's going. And all of a sudden, Stuart realizes, oh, no. Sitting right next to me in my personal clean space is a woman full of disease and germs. And she's holding lukewarm two-day barbecue. And we're all headed to prison. It's okay to laugh. Yeah, 
They get to prison. They escort Stuart and the mother into this metal room, empty room, and all there is is a metal table. And that's where Stuart met Charlie for the first time. The three of them sit down at that table, and the mom begins to pull out the plates and the napkins and the barbecue. And all of a sudden, Stuart realizes something. I've been with this woman all day, and she hasn't washed her hands, and she's about to have lunch. And oh, no, Stuart remembers one more thing. There's no silverware allowed in prison at this visit. Doesn't face Charlie's mom. You know what she does as a mom? She just takes that barbecue and puts it right on their plates. And then, this is true, she took that slab of ribs and she just started breaking off the rib and putting it on those boys' plates. Stuart said he immediately in his mind did one of those panic prayers. Do you know what that is? Dear Lord, just make my death fast, swift, take me now. Do not make me eat this. And as he's having his panic prayer, Charlie takes one of his hands and Charlie's mother takes his other. And all of a sudden, Charlie says a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. Stuart said when he opened his eyes, he saw Jesus at that table. Charlie's mom died the next week. Stuart never never met with Charlie. And Stuart became a very full-time prison chaplain. He took his shame and he turned it into service. A food visit by Jesus makes breakfast grace. It makes denial love and it makes shame service. Knowing the end of the story, it doesn't ruin it. It makes what happens in the middle a lot more meaningful. Jesus calls us. Jesus feeds us. Jesus leads us. Amen. Part of worship is knowing that we are also called to respond. We're all called to respond to different acts of justice and acts of service and acts of worship. And one of the ways that you are called and that I am called, that we as a community of Chapel Roswell is called to respond is through our giving. The ways to give are here on our screens. You can do it real fancy with your phone. We have a kiosk. Or you can just write a check and or have cash and put it in these baskets right back here. This is a way to support the ministry and the worship and the service of Chapel Roswell. So please give. 
Another way that we can respond is through acts of service. There are three different service and mission opportunities happening just this month of May. If you want to find out about them, come and find me. One of them actually involves a grill and Lee and Leonard and Roswell Creek Apartment. So come and find me and we'll learn more about and I'll tell you more about that. And another way to respond is through Holy Communion. And so now as we transition to our time of communion, I invite all of the communion servers to come and line up and join me. And as they do, as they do come forward, I would just remind you that this is our historic faith. And this is our historic church every time we gather around this table. And any time we gather, we remember the many times that Jesus gathered with those disciples before his death, after his death, and still this very morning. This is Jesus' table. God is our host. So no matter what denomination you are, no matter your first time or your hundredth time, this table is always open to you because it's God's way of giving you love and giving you grace. So please know the table is always open and welcome to you. So hear these words. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks to the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. So do this always in remembrance of me. And then when supper was over that night, he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you would in remembrance of me. So now it is in remembrance of these acts that we have a prayer now. Holy and gracious Lord, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for you. And we come asking forgiveness for any of the ways that we have fallen short. May you use this meal to help renew our spirits and renew our faith and renew our strength so we may be in better and good service for you. And we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. And this day, Lord, as we come to this table, may we remember the grief and the loss of all those results from the synagogues and the universities and the mosque shootings. Be with all of those hurts in your world. Be with all of those people so that they may have comfort and grace knowing your spirit is with them. Whatever we may bring to Lord, Walk with us in that journey so that we may leave today seeing your face in all things and all people and in all situations. Amen.